welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. We love sermons that point out the sins of other people. We love sermons that tell us we're mostly okay and just need to tweak our thinking or behavior to be better. We don't like sermons that show us that we might have it all wrong until the gospel penetrates our heart. Lead teacher Randy Pope continues the series Excuses, Excuses, Excuses with part one of I Am Moral and Religious, which covers Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 16. Thank you for joining us today. I think it is safe to say that most all of us have a tendency to overrate our abilities in certain areas. I remember in years past, as I was an avid tennis player, I would perhaps have the tendency to overrate my ability to return a serve. All that changed one day when I had the opportunity to be out with the number one player in the world, returning serves for about 30 minutes, bullets coming in at about 120 miles an hour, and all of a sudden, I didn't think I was such a good return of serve. The difference is simply we overrate our abilities and when we use an inappropriate benchmark to assess those abilities. I think we're all familiar with that. It's not just athletics. It's true in the business world. It's true in the musical world. It's true in the educational world. And this list goes on and on and on. When those of us who are novices in reality step into the big leagues we're amateurs, and we step into the big leagues, all of a sudden we go, oh, 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 I thought, but now I know. I know different now. I am convinced that there's nowhere, nowhere that we overrate our abilities any more than in the spiritual realm. How easy it is to believe that we're really doing pretty good morally. We're pretty good people. But the reality is when we step into the big leagues of God's character and his morality, we realize that we are truly amateurs and we fall so, so far away. I really believe that very few people assess themselves well in the moral arena. Wherever I go, whoever I'm talking to, I just sense that there is a, a, the same problem that I carry, and that is that I tend to think that I'm doing far better morally than in reality I am. How about this? What's the percentage of people that you would believe that are now Christians that you know are truly walking with the Lord, what percentage of those people would have said they were a Christian before they really became a Christian? I'd guess 9 out of 10. I bet of all the people I talk to, when I hear their stories, they say, oh, yeah, I thought I was a Christian, but, but then I realized and I became a Christian. What's the reality? We're simply doing this. We're overrating ourselves morally and spiritually. A person who does that, let's call them a moralist. Let me give you a definition for a person that we'll call the moralist. It's someone who seeks favor with God based on his or her virtuous life. Here's what happens. A moralist tends to overrate their goodness. They underestimate the indebtedness 
that they have before God because of their lack of morality. And then they begin to think this way. They begin to think, you know what? I think if I can raise the amount of my morality, and particularly if it's cloaked in religion, then it will do something to diffuse the amount and eliminate the amount of indebtedness that I should have before God. That's the way we think. And so we come now to our series, which is entitled Excuses, Excuses, Excuses. These are the excuses that we tend to use. All humanity does it. Excuses that we say, if I can believe this, if I hold this belief, this excuse in reality, then I think I can feel better about the fact that I'm not following closely at hand with a, a loving but very holy God. And therefore, we tend to use these excuses. We've been looking at several of them in the book of Romans, and we're in chapter 1, if you have your Bibles. But in Romans chapter 1, we have the Apostle Paul as author, writing under inspiration of God, and he is simply using the numerous excuses that you and I are so accustomed to to utilizing. Let's walk through those just quickly. There are four that he uses. We've looked at three already. The first one is simply this. God is so good. God would never allow me, a good moral person, as a good God, he wouldn't let something bad happen to me, would he, for all eternity? Romans 1.18. Number two, a real tough area we, we tackled, and that is, I never knew that is, I never knew the truth. I didn't understand. It was never made clear to me. Therefore, surely God will view me differently in the sense that he would not allow me to perish when I didn't really have a great, great, great opportunity. And so in verses 19 and 20, he says, no, not a good excuse, and he gives the reason why. We looked at some of the tough issues, children, people that are born without mental capabilities, and on and on, so much that most Christians never even contemplate or think about. But Paul puts it down very, very clear. Whoa, whoa, whoa. No, you're without excuse. Hmm. Then number three, and this was a tough one, God made me the way I am. I can't help the way I am. I have natural tendencies. I was born that way. You have to admit certain people have certain inclinations to certain issues of life and so forth and so on. And we tackled the hard one, homosexuality, which is included in the very heart of the text. Now we come to the fourth of the excuses. It's interesting. This excuse, I am moral and religious, chapter 2 Verse 1 through 320, the rest of our entire text we're going to cover over three weeks. Carol asked me, he said, how's the message coming? No, it's coming. It's, it's about ready. I, I don't think people are going to be real enthused with this message. The last message is, you know, boy, what about babies and what about this and so much an issue of question and how do you explain this and give me an answer to that one. But at the same time, she responded, and I agreed as we discussed, there is probably no issue of life that is more of an issue to you and to me than this one right here, this very issue. 
It is the most common excuse that is used today, not just by people of the world, but people within the church. And it is for sure the most deceptive. Folks, I want us to tackle this one. Don't just say, oh, yeah, 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 I know you, you can't. You can't just be more religious and get to heaven. I know that. I know that. Because there's a lot of implication to what we're about to see here. So, I am moral and religious. What Paul is going to do is he's going to take us into a courtroom setting. He is going to act as if he is the prosecuting attorney. And he is going to seek to prove the guilt of all mankind. I mean all mankind. So what he does is he picks the most unlikely for the reader of his day, the Jewish person. And this is the way he thinks. He says, you know, if I can, if I can make a clear case that the Jewish person, of all people, that the Jewish people are guilty before God, then the rest of the world will have to say, wow, what about me? It'd be like doing this. It'd be like saying to a crowd of, of uh, well, just us here. If we were to say, by the way, do you know that Mother Teresa, she didn't come close. You've got to be a lot more caring about hurting people than Mother Teresa to get into heaven. Or to say, and by the way, your ministry among the peoples that you are dealing with, your impact on them has to be far more significant than the ministry Billy Graham had when he lived his lifetime of ministry for those 60 to 70 years. Got to be far beyond what he did. We would stand aghast. We'd say, what? There's no way. Or if we were to say, you got to be a lot sweeter than your grandmother. You got to be so very, very sweet. You got to be the sweetest person. You'd finally sit back and say, well, how do you ever get there? And the point is, you don't, not on your own. Morality and religion will deceive all of us because there's something deeply rooted inside that says, I feel good about me if I'm both moral and religious. I ask people, how are you doing spiritually? People that are in my close realm of maybe my discipleship group or whatever. I say, how you doing? Well, I haven't been doing so good last few weeks. Oh, you haven't? No, I've been so busy, been doing this, been that. I, I, I didn't get much time with the Lord. I said, well, how's the relationship with the Lord? Well, I mean, it can't be that good because I'm... And then I counter back by saying, well, let me ask you if you went on a two-week trip and you're away from your spouse if married... And I said, how are you doing, you and your spouse? Would you say, oh, we're not doing so good. Why? Because I've been on a trip for two weeks. No, you wouldn't say that. You might say, oh, we're doing well. I, I miss her. I haven't spent the time that I'd love to spend with them. But, but you see, the mindset in the Christian is to say, no, it's based on what I'm doing right now, how I'm acting right now. How, and, and that determines, well, you keep that up, and it's going to divide a close communion relationship, I agree. You stay away on business week after week after week after week after week, and you're married, let me tell you, it will fracture the marriage. We know that. 
But folks, we're so ingrained in thinking it's all about my performance as to how relationship is doing. And so what we do is we say, I am moral and I am religious and therefore my relationship with God has got to be fairly good. And the Apostle Paul is going to take us to task on that kind of mindset. If you have your Bibles, we're going to walk through this. If you have your outlines too, I would suggest that you take your outline and just look over it a minute where you can see three arguments into this defense that the Apostle Paul is going to use. He's going to use what's called a diatribe. A diatribe is a literary device where the author speaks for himself and for the critic who will kind of come back and push back and say, but whoa, 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 whoa. And then he responds, and there's almost a dialogue. That's why they call it a diatribe. There's a dialogue going on between the author and this assumed critic. In doing so, he is going to argue with these three arguments, that moral and religious man are rightly declared guilty. That's what we'll look at today. Moral and religious people rightly declared guilty. Now, next week, we'll look at the fact that moral man is not aided by religion. There is a mindset that says religion will take care of me. No, it won't. And then thirdly, the last week, moral and religious man is really no better off than immoral, non-religious people. Hmm. In fact, I might be able to build a pretty good argument they're in worse condition. And so these three weeks, I think, am hitting a very, very important subject matter. Let's look at the first argument. I think this first argument has uh, about five teachings that I think important as I read through the text, and I'll just lift them out to you. They're going to be very quick, won't take very long. There is a lot of reading of text, and I, I, I don't ever like to read too much from the screen, but there's a lot of text. I have a few quotes, but, but uh, hang, hang in there with me on this one. Argument number one, without Christ, moral and religious man will be rightly declared guilty. So we look at the first 16 verses. The first of five teachings is simply this. His judgment will be fair. Not only is he going to judge, but it'll be fair. This was very similar to the teaching that he gave us in verse 18, that the wrath of God literally is given from God to all mankind, and rightly so. Here's how he puts it in verses 1 and 2. Therefore, you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment. For in that which you judge one another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. Look at this word. Therefore, you have no excuse, every one of you. You wouldn't pick this up in the English. But if you study the text, you find out that that is literally, O man, O man. And the word O man was used to describe the Jewish community. Very traditional term used to refer to the Jewish, not the Gentile, but the Jewish community. Well, you see, up to this moment, the Jewish people would say hardly, Amen. These Gentiles, let me tell you, they are pagan people. They are confused. They don't get it. They're not loved. They're not chosen. All these things, they are condemned. And they would say amen to that. And now the apostle Paul 
is going to sound to them heretical when he steps forward and says, and by the way, everyone, oh man, Jewish community, you too. Now, we don't think much about Jewish versus Gentile. But we do think in the same categories of religious and moral versus irreligious and immoral. And so the shock comes when he says, oh, you good, religious, moral people. You're guilty as well. So we're left with a, a tough teaching here. This is like a bombshell that goes off to the Jewish community. And it should be to us too as we begin to really understand this. It said, you who pass judgment condemn yourselves. Why? Because you do the same things, meaning you live the same way. Or to put it another way, you've got the same heart. The heart is the issue. It's not what it performs and how you act and how you talk and what you do. And No, 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 no. It's the heart that counts. And your heart is really no different. It's just like the hearts of the Gentiles. Here was the way the Jewish person would think. Jewish person would think, okay, I owe you $5,000. You owe someone else $10,000. Therefore, I don't owe you anything. Uh, there was a, such a comparison going on. As one Dutch proverb says, he who compares himself to others genuinely is easy on himself. And that is true. But I'll tell you what. It's easy for you and me, easy for you and me to find people who are a lot worse people morally and a lot less religious than we are. It's easy. So the first teaching, simply saying God is incapable of being biased, he's incapable of poor judgment, and he is going to be fair in his judgment when he says you're without excuse. Look at the second teaching. Second teaching is his judgment is inescapable. Verse 3. But do you suppose this, O man, there it is, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? And they'd say, well, we don't do the same things those Gentiles do. Moral man. Religious man, we don't do the same things these immoral people are doing, these irreligious people are doing. We don't do those things. And then we go back to the teaching of Jesus, Sermon on the Mount. And he says, you hate somebody, you commit murder. You lust at somebody, you commit adultery. And so it just keeps going back to the heart. Do you get this, folks? It's the heart and if we could open the chest and could look into the heart as God does, but not to the organ, but to the center of our very being, let me tell you, we would find ourselves aghast. We would just say, no, no. That's why, as I keep saying, when I'm with people that walk in a deep, godly manner, I mean deep in the Lord, deep, 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 I see them with such a sense of the unworthiness of themselves. They see the sin of their life. In unusual ways, because we just see ourselves clear and clear. The way Paul is describing this. 2 Corinthians 5.10 puts it this way, talking about inescapable. It says, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, 
so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or whether bad. Let me put up a quote of Karl Barth. So everyone stands in community, but this doesn't negate the fact that at one moment in history, we will stand before God alone. So his judgment, inescapable, simple teaching, but very important. Number three, his judgment will be cumulative, cumulative. Verses four and five, or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that his kindness that the kindness of God leads you to repentance. Boy, this is an important text. Important text. How many times have we run across someone, maybe we've said it ourselves, who says, you know, I was, uh, I was in this terrible, terrible, terrible accident, and, and I should have died. If you could see the pictures of the automobile, you would know it, it was a miracle that I came out alive. And you're asking me how... I stand before God, I think I'm in pretty good shape. Because let me tell you, there was no question from that day, God was smiling on me. I think God's taking care of me. And I want to run to this text right here and say, don't think lightly of the kindness of God because it is the kindness of God that leads to repentance. I heard it put this way one time. You know, God has three sources drawing us to himself. Uh, sometimes he uses crisis, and how many of us can tell the story of a crisis that drove us to our knees? We bowed before the living God. Number two, Christians. God uses other Christians that come in and show the love of God and show a different life and victory in a way of, uh, uh, of life that we go, man, I love to have that type of life. And, and so we say, I'm drawn to Christ through that person. The third is the kindness of God. Not to be deceived by the kindness of God. Its, its design is to lead to repentance, not to assure us that we're okay with God. So don't confuse that. Very, very important. Instead, it says he is storing up wrath for such. Number four, told you to go fast. His judgment will be solely based on man's actions. That is, our judgment will be based on the actions. Verses 6 through 10 reads like this. So who will render to each person according to his deeds? To those, or who will render to each? God will render to each person according to his deeds. To those who by perseverance and doing good seek for glory and honor and immorality, eternal life. Immortality, I'm sorry. But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, for them... Wrath and indignation. He actually repeats himself, takes the first two verses and repeats it almost identically, the last two verses for repetition and the purpose of emphasis. And basically, he's teaching us the reality that there are rewards and punishments. Are you aware of that? When you die, are all people treated the same? No. No. Some receive great reward, and some people get less reward. Those who are not gods, some receive very, very severe punishment compared to others with even a more severe punishment. Found in Scripture, found in uh, Luke 12, 47 and 48. But the one who did not know it and committed deeds worthy of flogging, I think, was it, uh, we got 47 too, yeah. 
47, and that slave who knew his master's will and did not get ready or act in accord with his will will receive many lashes. But the one who did not know it and committed deeds worthy of a flogging will receive but few. From everyone who has been given much, much will be required. And to whom they entrusted much of him, they will ask all the more. Very important to understand that God does. He does take certain uh, rewards and, and offers them in heaven. We don't understand exactly how it is. There's not going to be jealousy. We know that. It will not be a sense of, of oh, no, I'm not happy because I didn't get the rewards. But in the same sense, there is going to be an understanding of how much truth have you been given? How much opportunity were you given? To what degree were you faithful? And, but always according to man's actions. And then the last and the final. His judgment will be impartial, the last verses 11 through 16. For there is no partiality with God, for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves. But in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. On the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus, the Jew is condemned by the law. Very interesting. You see, the Jews thought that they were going to get some special treatment. After all, they're Jewish people. There's an interesting dialogue that's been recorded in a, in a work by, by uh, Justin Martyr. Justin Martyr was one of the great faithful uh, followers of Christ in the earliest of the days of the church, at literally 100 A.D. to 160 A.D., and he, uh, he shares a conversation. It's a dialogue he had with, I think you pronounce it Trifo. I never, Trifo, Trifo. But uh, who had a different opinion. This is what this fellow, Trifo, I'll call him, says. They who are the seed of Abraham, according to the flesh, shall in any case, even if they be sinners and unbelieving and disobedient to God, share in the eternal kingdom. Hmm. Isn't that interesting? They're going to share in the kingdom. Not true. We know that's not true. Not because you're just Jewish. See, here's the way it was in the day of the Jewish people to whom he's writing. These Jewish people, you know, we think about when you tell a joke about going to heaven, uh, who do you meet at the gate? You tell me. Peter. Yeah, why Peter? I don't know, but it's always Peter. You're going to meet Peter at the gate. Well, if they were going to tell a joke, it was always going to be Abraham at the gate. Not Peter, obviously, Old Testament folks. They were all about Abraham. And even in the New Testament, the Jewish people, they said, you know, if you are related to Abraham, then you are okay. That was the mindset. It really was. You're okay. No, not true at all. You see, their question would be this. When you get to the gate, Abraham's going to say, are you Jewish? And you show him your passport. Oh, yeah, here I am. I'm Jewish. No, you come on in. You're good. Good to go. 
You know what the moralist says? He assumes he's going to hear at the gate, Randy, were you good? You live a good life? Oh, yeah, I lived a good life. You come on in. No, not true at all. Not true at all. In fact, the issue of the Jew first and also the Gentile was a significant teaching. Did the Jewish people have special opportunity? Yes, they had the revelation of God written and given to them. They were a people that God said, you're not special in any form or fashion over any other people, but I am going to treat you in a special way. I'm going to treat you in a special way to model my love to the world, but it's not because you are a better people. I'm going to give to you the very thoughts that I have, how to live, what is good and acceptable, what is not. You do what I tell you to do, and you will find blessing. You walk away from what I tell you to do, and you will find curse. And they take that and they go, oh, I got that. We're special because we get the law, and if we walk according to the law, then we're okay with you. That was never what was intended to be said. Never. It was saying, here is the law so that you might see your heart as it really is. And as you see your heart, it's going to drive you to see that you can't be moral. You can't be religious enough. There's nothing you can do to make it. And that's going to give you that special opportunity to see Christ in all of Scripture and to see the work of Jesus if you're in the New Testament through history, and it'll drive you to him to see that he is your only hope. And they're still thinking, oh, I got the law. To the Jew first. We're the special people. To the Jew first. Paul is going to say now, you want to be first? All right, you'll be first. You'll be the first for judgment. The judgment's going to be tougher on you because look at the opportunity you had with the law. Or to us, look at the opportunity that you have and I have hearing the Word of God on a regular basis. What a great opportunity. To whom is given much, much is required. And he's really saying, look, it doesn't matter if you're Jew or Gentile. You're all condemned before a holy God. But that's what drives us to the truth of the gospel. That's what takes us to the good news. No, I, I can't be moral enough and religious enough. In fact, the only reason I want to be moral in religion is because as I see Jesus, then now I have a new capability. His Spirit has been given to me. And now I have the ability, moral ability, to obey for blessing. I have the moral ability to love for joy and peace in my heart. I'm blessed. That's the story of Christianity. Let me close putting it this way. It'd be much like someone who went to a hotel and realized as they checked in and began to use the, the room and all of that uh, is provided in that room to realize, uh-oh, I don't have the money I thought I have. I'm not going to be able to pay. I'm not going to be able to pay for this room. And so the person says, well, I think I'll do this. I'll go launder the sheets, and, and I'll make up the bed, and I'll clean up the room, and I'll have the place very tidy. And then what I'm going to do is I'm going to go to the front desk, and I'm going to say to the people at the front desk, by the way, I've cleaned the bedroom, I've 
you know, gotten everything washed and ready and so forth. Everything's back in its place. You won't even tell I've been there. Therefore, you need to cut me some slack here on my bill, and I'll, I'll just pay half the price, okay? No place is going to say yes to that. In a very similar way, moral man says, you know, I realize I've got a debt here. I've, I've used a, a lot of collateral here, spiritually speaking, and therefore I've fallen. I need to get things right. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to clean up my life. I'm going to clean up the mess of my life as much as I can. And then I'm just going to hope and expect that when I walk into the presence of God, that he's going to cut me some slack and say, I will agree, you gave a lot of attention to cleanup work, and I'm going to treat you special. And God says, no, I don't do that. you got to see it's all or nothing. You either have no righteousness or you have God's total and full righteousness. It's understanding, folks, this idea that's so trapping so many of us right here in our moral thinking and so forth. I think I'm okay. I think I'm okay. I think I'm okay. I'm doing pretty good. I'm doing pretty good. And to understand, no, 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 no. Here it is. You hear how I talk about the gospel in a little trilogy of statements. We lost it all. We lost everything. We lost our, our goodness. We lost our perfection, sure, but even all of our goodness, it's gone. And, oh, we can cover with the trappings of how we act and so forth, but that's not going to do us any good. Number two, Jesus, he did it all. And you begin to understand the truth of the gospel, you go to him and, look, he did everything. He paid the penalty that we couldn't pay ourselves outside of the death for eternity. And he says, look, I've done it all. Then we begin to understand that we can get it all. We get his full righteousness. See, if we think we can add any at all to our morality and our religion to make us in a better standing with God, if we have any of that thinking going on within us, I will assure you we will not embrace the full righteousness of God. And you and I will be trapped in performance. And it'll be all about how was your devotion this morning? How was your attendance at church over the last year? How did you do treating your fellow man? Are those unimportant? No, they're important. But only as a byproduct of embracing the righteousness of Christ and now with the delight of the former duty, now we go, that's the way I want to live. So I'm going to ask us to do this as we close. I'm going to ask us to do a little evaluation right now. And say, let's be honest, are we, are we trying to aid our relationship with God by what we're doing? By our morality or by our religion? Are we trying to aid our righteousness in that regard? And I'm going to beg us, let's confess that even as we would the sin of, and you can fill in the worst of all sins and say, God, forgive me. That's what's hindering me right now. It's not my immorality. It's not my lack of religion. It is my morality and my religion that's standing in the gap of a great relationship with you. And then God then, please, when I meet you, would you give me the strength to live morally and with great religion? But let me do it as an outflow of what you've worked in my life, not as a means, 
to get you to like me. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we find this so subtle. Without even thought, we drift into moralism. And I pray, Father, that you would convict our hearts as much of our moralism right now as we would be convicted of our immoralism. I pray, Father, that you would grant to us right now forgiveness for seeking to replace your work at Calvary's cross with our work and the way we live. God, may we fall in love with our Jesus. May we see him better and better every day, not just as our judge, but as our friend, as our brother, our elder brother. God, may we fall in love with the family that you've given to us. And may we find that this next week, it's going to be a life more purely going to you than going to work for you. We ask that you would grant that in the matchless name of our great Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and find other messages from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.